Hello, everyone. I'm Roger Highfield. I'm Director of External Affairs at the Science Museum. Welcome to LATES and welcome to this event with Venki Ramakrishnan of the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology, uh, the, uh, also uh, the President of the Royal Society, of course, and most importantly of all, the winner of the 2009 Nobel Prize uh, for Medicine. Venki, uh, welcome. So, of course, the main reason we're here tonight is to discuss Venki's book. And I just want to give you a little bit of an uh, overview. I've, I've, I've taken his gigantic slide deck of about 100 slides and just pulled out a few highlights because it's an incredibly visual subject, and I think it will just help to have a few prompts. So, obviously, here's the gene machine, which is basically um, this amazing molecular machine that turns genes into flesh and blood. Um, very well received, the great Matt Ridley, giving it a very positive review here. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the Nobel Prizes, and of course they're going to come up in a few days' time. And also the point of it all, um, because understanding the ribosome can help us deal with antibiotic resistance. But thank you, I just want to go right the way back to the start, and your upbringing, and you, you started out in a, in, a, in a girls' school, which is kind and of quite... Finished. <laughs> and finished. So just tell me a little bit about your background, and uh, because you've got an extraordinary multinational, multicultural yeah, background. So um, I, I grew up mostly in India, except for two years uh, when I was eight and nine uh, in Australia. Uh, but my parents are Tamils, so they were from the south of India. And when I was three, uh, they moved to Gujarat, which is where all the Patels are from. And uh, so uh, I didn't, I, neither they nor I spoke a word of Gujarati. And actually, uh, one of the things that Jennifer Doudna in the foreword says is that she gets this impression of someone who's an outsider yeah. looking in. And I have to say, one of my earliest memories is of standing in by a playground and not understanding a word that the children were saying. And so that being the case, they sent me to the only English school in town. Uh, it was a sort of, you can think of it as a tropical uh, Hogwarts, you know, it had houses and prefects right. and so on. But anyway, um, so, it, but, but when I was about in third grade, the nuns who ran the school uh, said, oh, you know, those Jesuits are going to set up an English school down the road, so we're not going to take any more boys. And, uh, but those boys who are already enrolled can stay on. And of course, none of us wanted to leave uh, because we're all foreign friends and so on. And so uh, gradually, by attrition, the number of boys declined, uh, and that, but, but new girls kept entering the school. And so by the, uh, you know, by the time I graduated, I think it was something like a four to one ratio. Now, before we move on to what kind of kindled your interest in science, because some of you were endlessly fascinated with in the museum, can anyone in the, in the audience, can, can, who, can someone spot Venki in this school photograph? Any? Mm, in fact, I think, I hope, uh, this is your description, Venki. It's the nerdy boy, the third one over here. Sorry, I'm kind of feeding back here. So that's right, isn't it? So, um, but Venki, tell me, I mean, so what, what was it that... 
Was it your, your background, you know, with your parents? Uh, was it the teaching? So, so what, my, what lit parents, the flame? my parents were scientists. Uh, in fact, my mother went off to get her PhD from McGill, uh, leaving me uh, being taken care of by my dad in India. And, uh, and then she came back 18 months later uh, with a PhD. So, so they were both scientists. And uh, one thing, I didn't know anything about science, but I did know that it meant that all sorts of people from different countries would show up at our house right. and, and talk animatedly with different accents and so on. And so it seemed like an exciting life. So let's just move on now to the rivalries, because I think, I mean, we're, we're, I'm trying to compress this wonderful narrative in Gene Machine into about half an hour or so. But we need to set up the key characters in the story. So um, tell us a little bit about Ada Yonath and, and Whitman as well. So Heinz Gunther Wittmann had worked on the genetic code. Uh, clearly, he was not one of the, the, the big people who cracked it, but he'd been using uh, tobacco mosaic virus, which had a single-stranded RNA. So in those days, you could only get, uh, you know, this messenger RNA that is directly read uh, to make proteins uh, from viruses. Yeah. And uh, he then set up a Max Planck Institute, and he was very interested in how the genetic message was read to make proteins. So his whole department was to study all sorts of things about ribosomes. And I point out in the book, you know, he first hired a guy who was really something of a fraud. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and that guy... It's a very candid book, I have to say, so... And, and, th and that guy, you know, uh, went off to some professorship. And, uh, but he had published a paper saying crystallizing ribosomes ought to be possible. Yeah. So Wittmann was still interested in that. And then uh, another guy, a very famous crystallographer from the U.S., actually Canadian, uh, wanted to come and work with Wittmann to work to crystallize the ribosome. And uh, because he had a German girlfriend and he wanted to, um, you know, spend some time in Germany. But his girlfriend dumped him. Uh, he said she suddenly took a diversion. That's the way he <laughs> described it. And so he didn't want to bother going to Germany anymore. But in the meantime, Wittmann had arranged for a fellowship, von Humboldt fellowship for this guy, Frederick. And, and then Ada Yonat met him at some meeting and then wrote to him asking if she could spend some time in his institute. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, he had this fellowship, so he, he was delighted because, you know, it was the third time that, you know, he would make this attempt. And Ada, Ada I have to say, uh, to her credit, you know, took it very, very seriously. Mm. It wasn't just some, you know, thing that she would give it a shot, and if it didn't work, you know, not, she wouldn't do anything. Uh, but actually, as it turned out, things worked within a few months, and they got these crystals of the, you know, the ribosome has two parts, as you can see in the cartoon there, a large part and a small part, and she got crystals of the large part. And that encouraged Wittmann so much that he made sure that Ada had all these resources uh, you know, supplied her with ribosomes and then helped to set her up with a, a, a lab near a synchrotron, which are these powerful X-ray sources. In fact, I probably should fill in a bit of background for those who aren't familiar with X-ray crystallography, that to image this massively complicated molecule, 
then you need, you need to make crystals. And, and in effect, the bigger the molecule you've got to crystallize, the harder it is. I mean, it, yeah. it was an amazing feat when they, they sort of paved the way for this research decades ago, wasn't yeah. it, I think? So, you know, synchrotrons were used by high-energy physicists to make, uh, you know, particles go round and round at very high energy and then, you know, smash them into things and see what happened. Uh, but as it turned out, if you accelerate a charged particle in a ring, they emit very, very powerful, you know, strong emission of X-rays. These X-rays were regarded by the physicists as a kind of waste because they were throwing away energy that they wanted to put into the particle. But then Ken Holmes, who uh, was also at the Max Planck, uh, decided that, well, if there are these powerful X-rays, maybe we can use them to study uh, materials. And they built the first X-ray diffraction beamline at Hamburg. And Wittmann uh, persuaded the Max Planck Institute to set up a lab for ADA just outside the Hamburg synchrotron. And that's what got them sort of started on, on the project. Now, there's a critical bit in the book when you, you describe uh, a meeting and then you talk about, there's a, there's a lovely quote, slightly cruel quote, I think, actually, as well. The proceedings of the meetings are usually written up a book, and Arda's chapter had the grandiose title, A Milestone in Ribosome Crystallography. I thought it was closer to a millstone. And, and you, you make it clear that everyone at that meeting the, the, there was a key group who thought, actually, we've got a chance to beat her and, yeah. and the others to the prize. Now, there was the... I, I, I don't think it quite came about like that, but I think the aftermath of the meeting was a bit like that. But, uh, so I'll tell you what happened. By, by, before I went to the meeting, I had already figured out a, a potential strategy for how to solve very, very large molecules. It came out of completely accidental things that I did when I was on sabbatical uh, at the LMB, uh, oddly enough, the place where I work now. And uh, when I been, went back to the US, I realized that actually if you used a certain technique using synchrotrons, you could actually solve the phase problem for a very large object. Now, at, by that time, there had been good crystals of the large subunit, largely as a result of Ada's efforts. But there weren't any good crystals of the small subunit. And I thought that would be a little niche for me. And I thought, well, Anna will make progress with the large subunit, but there'll be something for me to do uh, in the whole thing. Uh, but when we went to the meeting, um, you know, we were shown these maps that had, were supposedly at a resolution where we should have been able to see features like alpha helices and double-stranded uh, RNA. And, and the maps had absolutely no features. And in hindsight, we know now why. Uh, you know, it turned out that the space group and the packing were wrong. And these are essential things in order to solve a structure. And so, um, you know, we, we, we went to the meeting and we were just, you know, completely underwhelmed uh, by what we saw. And uh, I described this scene where Harry Noller, who's a ribosome biochemist, didn't know what was going on, because he, he wasn't a crystallographer. And uh, Peter Moore, who was my mentor, who knew a lot about diffraction. And the three of us were thinking, you know, something is just completely amiss here. And I described the scene as, uh, you know, the opening scene from a movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world, where 
somebody, you know, this guy who's dying, you know, tells a bunch of, in a car crash, tells a bunch of people who've kind of assembled at the car crash about this treasure that's buried somewhere. And then, he, you know, he, he dies. And all the people pretend they don't believe him. And they all sort of rush off, you know, to get a head start <laughs> on the others, okay? And, and so it was a little bit like that. Not, none of us told the other, others, you know, we're gonna go do it, you know? And the, but in the end, you know, within about a year, I found out all, of, all, you know, all three of us were working on it. And so, and there was the Yale team as well, wasn't yes, there? Yes, the Yale team. Well, the Yale team direct, decided to go directly head to head with Ada by taking the, the good 50S crystals that she had right. determined over many years. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to do that because I didn't know how it would be uh, perceived. And so I wanted to work on the 30S. What, in the end, what happened was, you know, Adaf was not able to make progress with the 50S. And in the meantime, found a condition that stabilized and improved her own 30S. So instead of my having a quiet niche, I found myself in this head-to-head -head race, you know, unintentional head-to-head -head race with Ada, which was quite unpleasant, you know, yeah. because you know, nobody wants to be in that situation. So you're racing to understand this machine. Let, let's just take a quick diversion, just, just to understand a bit about the, the technique. So I suppose the first thing, Venki, is for people who aren't familiar, there are different ways of representing uh, molecules here. Um, I mean, just this is three depictions of exactly the same thing, DNA. Yes. Yeah, so, I, so I, I, I actually have another slide where I show three ways of representing people, and you know, where I show a photograph of somebody, a cartoon of somebody, yeah. and then a, a sort of icon of somebody. You know, Clinton is represented as a waffle. You know, so, so, <laughs> but, but anyway, but the, but the point is, this would, is how you would see a molecule if you just showed all of the atoms in, this, in a proportional sizes, what's called the van der Waals radii. But if you have a very complex structure, all you'll see is a bunch of balls, you know, and it'd be very hard to, to figure out what is the architecture of the molecule. This is a somewhat simplified view where you don't show the atoms at full size, but you show sticks for atoms that are connected by chemical bonds. So it's called a stick diagram representation. But then you can simplify it even further to show the essential architecture and some of the essential features of the molecule. So you, you can see there are two strands and there are four types of bases and the bases interact in a very specific way. So if we then move on to the other key thing we've got to understand is what, what is the ribosome doing? And of course, you know, DNA has got the instructions, they're translated into another set of instructions and so, Venki, just, just quickly talk us through the, the, the machine yeah. and uh, uh, so people have got the big so, picture. So, you know, there, there, fundamentally, there are two kinds of nucleic acid that the cell uses. One is DNA, which everybody's heard of, uh, which is what, where our genes are typically stored. And, but, you know, just as if you went to the British Library and you wanted to look at uh, the copy of, you know, the archival copy of some book, you know, published in 1500 or something. They're not going to let you handle the book. They're going to give you a copy of the book. You know, what page do you want? And they'll make, make a copy of the page, and then you can study the page. So in that sense, the RNA 
is like a working copy of a gene. So portions of DNA are copied uh, which contain information on how to make a protein. And those are called messenger RNA because they contain the genetic message. And then that RNA has to somehow magically be translated into a protein, which is what it codes for. And of course, we have all kinds of proteins in our body. For example, the reason you're all able to see the screen is because there's a protein called rhodopsin in your eye that detects light. There are other proteins in your hair cell that transmit you know, sound through your brains, uh, through, through your ears into your uh, nervous system and into your brain. Uh, touch, uh, even oxygen, for example, is transported by proteins. So you get the idea. There are thousands of proteins. They carry out skin is made of protein, hair is made of protein. So they, do, they not only make us, but they also carry out all of the functions in, inside us. And how to go from the gene to a protein uh, was the big problem of the ribosome. So the ribosome, you can actually image it, can't you, just about under an electron microscope. And you can even sort of see this blob deforming. Well, it's better you? than that now. You know, today, uh, you know, I don't know if some of, some of you have read the, a book called The Soul of a Molecular Machine. It was about the first 32-bit computer, you know, and it was uh, a data general Nova computer that never really made it big in the market, okay? It's a bit like Betamax, in a way, you know? <laughs> right. And uh, in a way, uh, this, this book is a little bit like describing that, that chase, you know, to build the first 32-bit computer. Because actually today, we wouldn't use crystallography uh, to solve the ribosome. Because last year's Nobel Prize winner, uh, prize was given for cryo-EM. And one of the driving forces was uh, my colleague Richard Henderson, who won, shared the Nobel Prize. Another prize winner was Joachim Frank, who worked on the ribosome. And today, you would just take your samples. You wouldn't bother with crystals. And you looked at them under an electron microscope and you can get an atomic structure. So no one in my lab actually does crystallography anymore. So we're going to explain very briefly the slog to do crystallography. And I suppose the key thing to remember is that these are molecular structures, scatter x-rays, but you can't focus x-rays. You just get a load of dots, which is when you were the Braggs more than a century ago, with looking at simple things like salts, you get simple patterns of dots. But with a monster like the ribosome, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. So, I mean, it is a big, complex machine. In fact, thank you. Remind me, how many um, atoms, roughly speaking, in the whole ribosome? So, in, in the bacterial ribosome, which is almost about half the size of a human ribosome, uh, has a million atoms. And so, it's this enormously complex machine. And when you realize the first crystal structure was sodium chloride, which was two atoms. Yeah. Okay, so we went from two to a million in about 100 years, okay, or 88 years or so. And we've got this just to show that it, it, these are quite mechanical, aren't they? They, they, they are. deform and move the, and the so reason on. I call, the reason I call it a machine, uh, you know, the, the term molecular machine is often used to, for large molecules in the cell or molecular complexes that actually use energy and move in order to carry out their action. So in that sense, they're very much like what we think of as machines, you know, in, the, in our day-to-day -day world. 
And if you wanted to understand a machine, I mean, one thing I point out in the book is, if you're a Martian and you've never been to Earth before and you sort of hover around over the Earth and you see these little objects moving in straight lines and turning at right angles, and then if you got closer, you'd see that there are smaller objects that actually enter the bigger object. And the bigger object only moves when there are smaller objects inside it. And when the smaller objects come out, it stops moving, okay? Uh, so, and then you'd get even closer, and then you'd see, oh, you know, you have to feed it uh, gasoline, and then, you know, it emits carbon dioxide and water and some pollutants. Uh, you, you'd, you'd sort of start to begin to understand the machine, okay? But as you got closer, you'd, you'd get that view, but that wouldn't tell you how the machine worked. It doesn't even tell you how it's constructed. All you see is a sort of overall shape. Then you know you start opening it up and looking at details, and you start seeing there are different parts in different places. But then you have to really look inside to see what what exactly is in there. How does it work? Yeah. You know, and how does so so it's exactly the same with a molecular machine like the ribosome. If you can't see the details, then you know even after 50 years, we really didn't understand how it worked. So we you resorted to X-ray, I'm whizzing through your slides here. Oh, sorry. I've... And so this gives you, this is a conventional way of visualizing something, but of course then you've got the X-ray problem. You can't focus them. Yeah, so, you know, this is just basically a lens, and what it does is it takes scattered rays and combines them into an image. And the image under, you know, the right conditions can be much larger than the object. And so you magnify it, and that's how you see uh, detail. And, but then if you go to x-rays, I don't know if you've got... Yeah, so with x-rays, there's no lens. But you can take the scattered rays and do in a computer what a lens does, which is to recombine the rays to make a, an image. And for those of you who are mathematical, what you're doing is doing a Fourier transform of the, on the scattered rays. That's what a lens actually does. And uh, so you end up with a three-dimensional image of the object. And, and so in a sense, you're doing what a lens does. And, and the reason to use x-rays, which we didn't get into, is that the light has a wavelength of about 500 nanometers. But the distance between atoms is only about 0.2 nanometers. So you're, many, you're an, three orders of magnitude larger than the separation between atoms. And there's a law in physics that you can only resolve things about half the wavelength of the radiation you're using. And so there's no way you could have done it with light waves. And so you have to use x-rays, which have very short wavelength. So we've got this slide here that sort of shows um, this is what comes out the other end, isn't it? Basically, That's right. once your crystals in there scatters the x-rays. And it's a monumental task, isn't it, making sense of these patterns? Yeah, and I have to say, you know, there were difficulties at every step of the way. For example, um, you know, crystallizing the ribosome was a big deal. Uh, and, you know, we have to credit Ada and, uh, and Wittmann for their, yeah. especially Ada, for her persistence. And, uh, you know, for, for showing it was possible, even though... Uh, a lot of us got other forms of the crystals and independently arrived mm -hmm. at crystals. Uh, it was breaking that psychological barrier to show, yes, you could get good crystals of something really as large as a ribosome. I think 
you have to absolutely credit her uh, for that. But then, even after you got crystals, you know, she had crystals for quite a long time and there was no structure. And part of the problem is that these crystals often die very quickly in the beam mm. because uh, they're not very strong diffractors and you hit them very hard with these powerful x-rays and they suffer radiation damage. And other people had to develop methods of cooling the crystal so that it wouldn't da get damaged so quickly. Then you had to have s development of synchrotrons that took, that's a cast of thousands of scientists yeah. working. Then you had to had the people who developed x-ray detectors. We use CCD detectors. And oddly enough, the physics prize that, that year went to two people who had developed CCD detectors and a person who had developed fiber optics, which was used for the internet. Yeah. And, I, and I felt like telling them, you know, our prize, we wouldn't be there if they hadn't done their work first. <laughs> they had the Nobel Prize, basically. <laughs> well, you know, if they hadn't done their work, we yes. wouldn't be there. Of course, they'd be there, but we, you know, if we hadn't done yes. our work. So, so, you know, it just shows you how interconnected yeah. uh, science is and how all these developments, uh, you know, act in different parts of science that are used willy-nilly as, as needed. So just talk through the end of the race, because we set up the characters, and I can remember ringing you in 2001 uh, about a science paper, and it really was coming to a head, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was. I, I, you were one of the early... I, I have a soft spot for Roger, because you know he published a full-page article in The Telegraph on the ribosome in 2001, uh, when most people didn't really first of all, didn't know about it, and secondly, didn't care. And uh, <laughs> so, so I, I thought that was, uh, you know, showed you know, that you were really right on, uh, on the ball. But, um, yeah, so by 2001, the atomic structures of the individual subunits had been determined, mm -hmm. and there was a low-resolution structure of the entire thing yeah. by Harry Noller. So the way it happened was, you know, Ada had good crystals of the 50S, the Yale group took those crystals and started making progress with it. Ara then switched to the 30S, which I had thought was my niche. And so there was this sort of three-way race, but really Ara and I were working on exactly the same molecule. And the Yale group was, you know, going off with the 50S. And then there was a Russian group that had crystallized the, the 30S originally, not very good crystals, but but they got the first ones, as well as the whole ribosome. Uh, again, not good enough to give an atomic resolution structure. And Harry Noller, who was up to that time a biochemist, decided to hire uh, this husband and wife team from Russia who had gotten the first crystals. And since none of them knew any crystallography, they also hired Jamie Kate, who's also known as Jennifer Doudna's husband. And uh, so, Jamie Kate was this hotshot crystallographer uh, who had just solved the group one intron structure, big RNA structure in Jennifer's uh, lab. Jennifer, before her CRISPR-Cas fame, actually was an RNA crystallographer, a structural biologist. So, so uh, there was this four-way race now, you know, with the sort of 70S, the whole ribosome people in Santa Cruz, yeah. and uh, the Yale guys with the 50S, and Ada and I with the 30S. So, by 2001, the atomic structures of the individual subunits were solved, and using that, Harry had put together a model for the entire ribosome. It was not de novo, but because he had the two halves that we had solved.
And uh, I, there's a book in my, there's a chapter in my book called The Ribosome Roadshow. You know, by this time, everybody was very excited about, you know, this big breakthrough uh, of a 50-year problem. And, you know, I'd go give talks and they'd say, you know, there's a Nobel Prize in this. And it's slightly, and I talk about how it warps your mentality. And I also noticed that when people were giving talks, they would, you know, they'd all talk, talk up their work and, and slightly downplay <laughs> other people's work. You know, it's almost like Science a political campaign. Science is done campaign. by human beings. Who would have thought? Who would have thought <laughs> scientists were humans, right? With <laughs> egos and ambitions and rivalries and so on. So Which I, all comes out very clearly in the book. So, so it took on this hallmark of political campaign. And, you know, I remember once, you know, I went, I'd go to a meeting. I went to a meeting in the U.S. I went from there to a biophysics congress in Buenos Aires, and from there directly flew to Norway, where there was some, you know, another international congress, and, and then, you know, came home pretty exhausted. So it, it was kind of weird. And then suddenly, I, we all started getting invitations from Sweden, you know. Some, you know, it's almost like we suddenly, you know, existed, you know, for these guys. And, you know, the same gang would sort of show up at these meetings, you know, and then there'd be all these people, in, uh, uh, you know, from committees. And once there was a ribosome session at an RNA meeting, and these three or four people came into our session, sat in the front row, and then after we gave our talks, they just got up and left instead of, you know, listening to the other talks. And then I said, I said to Tom Steins, who the hell were these people? And he says, don't you know? Those are in the chemistry committee. They're members of the chemistry committee, you know? So I realized, you know, we're being auditioned. You so, know? so do they do a kind of X factor thing, you know, <laughs> five out of 10, 10 yeah. out of 10? Oh, yeah, yeah, like so, that's about, so you're, you're right. I, I discussed, <laughs> so, so the worst was, you know, when we had, the, when there was a big meeting organized by the Nobel Committee for Chemistry. And uh, it was very clearly an audition. And, you know, there were people like, uh, there were several people who won Nobel Prizes who were speakers at that meeting because it was on the whole thing of how DNA is replicated, copied to RNA, translated, and then how proteins are used. So Liz Blackburn was there, Roger Chen was there, Roger Kornberg. So all these guys went on to get Nobel Prizes, uh, actually before us, I should say. And uh, I remember when one of them got a Nobel Prize, Tom and I were talking, and Tom said, you know, I feel like we flunked our audition, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't say that in the book because, uh, well, it's a little too close to home. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, so I was really sort of fed up by then because uh, a friend of mine from Berkeley gave a superb talk on DNA replication. And at the lunch break, there were these two sort of whom I'd call contenders sitting next to a Nobel Committee guy in between them. And I was sitting across the table munching on my uh, lunch. And uh, uh, the Nobel Committee guy said, you know, I, was, I didn't think much of Kurian's talk. And I was kind of completely taken aback. It was a brilliant talk. And these two guys who should have known better sort of nodded, you know, and started agreeing with him, you know, saying, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I said, no, I think he's, he, it was a brilliant talk and actually, it's true he hasn't shown it, but I bet you his lab is trying to do the next step as we speak. And uh, so the committee guy says, yeah, actually you're right, you know. And then these two guys immediately changed their mind, you know, and started agreeing with the committee. And made me say, and these were real big shots, you and know. only three people can share the Nobel yeah, Prize. But, you know, the, yeah, but they weren't in my field, they were in some other field. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but the 
the kind of sycophantic yeah. attitude that they had to this committee member, it was really kind of weird, you know? And, uh, and, I, and I point that out in the book. And then I also had, I got into a big fight with a, a Swedish ribosome guy about some aspect of the ribosome. And uh, I went home, and about a few months later, I realized, realized the guy had been appointed to the Nobel Committee for Chemistry. And so I thought, well, You've that's it. it for me. You know? <laughs> and so after that, for the next five years, I just turned down all invitations to Sweden because I said, I'm not going to go there like some supplicant, you know, when I'm, you know, I know they're not going to choose me, right? And then, so, I, so when the phone call eventually came, I was actually completely taken aback, and I asked to speak to the guy. I said, well, if, if you're not, this isn't a prank call, I want to talk to this guy, Mons Ehrenberg. And uh, sure enough, they put him on the on the line. Well, you were worried it was a grad student putting on a Swedish accent. Uh, that's a classic no, but I knew, uh, hazard. Yeah, yeah but, I knew, but I knew Mons, so you know. So anyway, so I described this whole kind of, kind of what I call the politics of recognition. And, and, and I also, I'm very frank about what I think of prizes uh, in general. Well, let, before we get there, just, just quickly, let, let's look at the, the two, two areas where uh, this isn't just about the Nobel Prize. It is about antibiotics as well. Mickey, just, just talk us through, you know, here's the great machine. Um, it, it's a common target, isn't it, for yeah, antibiotics? It is. and, and, you know, it's a surprising target because what you want for a, a good drug target is something that's specific to bacteria and, uh, you know, that doesn't exist in us. Yeah. So penicillin, for example, which hits cell wall formation, is perfect because we don't have cell walls, okay? So the ribosome is a surprising target because we have ribosomes, mm. and the core of the ribosome is very similar to, to what it is in bacteria. So why do half of known antibiotics attack the ribosome? It's a sort of a mystery, and uh, it could be because these compounds are very large and they bind in these large pockets in the ribosome very well, and they do it in a way where they distinguish between the subtle differences between our ribosomes and bacterial mm. ribosomes. So they bind the bacterial ones, and they don't bind us. And of course, we, we desperately need new antibiotics we do. at the moment. I mean, there are 25,000 deaths a year uh, just in Europe uh, alone every year uh, from MRSA, and it's a growing problem uh, in the world. Uh, but once the structures were solved, we could actually see, visualize exactly how antibiotics bound in the ribosome. And then drug companies have taken these structures to try and design better compounds. And they have developed better compounds, mm -hmm. but to go from a compound to a drug that you can give or to a patient is a very long process. Yeah. You know, three phases of clinical trials, lots of approvals. So it takes about a billion dollars, typically, to develop a, a drug. And, uh, you know, I consulted with two companies, one which was a startup around Cambridge, and then with the company that Tom Stites founded, which mm. is still going. But the problem is that, you know, this company tried to launch an IPO, uh, you know, a few years ago, and the share price they commanded in tests was less than, what, far less than what investors had already put into the company. So the IPO was withdrawn. The same month, a company whose main product is to share gossip and 
photographs of her, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends and, you know, babies and so on, and uh, uh, also share a lot of fake news, yeah. uh, was worth billions, okay? So, uh, you know, there's something wrong yeah. with the business model for how we develop drugs, okay? And it's well to remember that penicillin, the first modern antibiotic, wasn't developed by some private company. It was developed by a large government enterprise that put in money into Oxford to develop uh, penicillin. So I think we do have a, an issue here. I'm going to open up to the audience for a, a, a couple of questions in a minute. Let's just do two, quickly two subjects. I mean, the other thing that's kind of amazing about the ribosome is this machine has been going for about four billion years. So we, we, we're getting a glimpse, aren't we, of the very dawn of life when we look at the yeah. ribosome. Well, or, or at least a pr primordial form of life. So, you know, one puzzle of the ribosome is, you know, these, uh, these little gray things around it are proteins. So the ribosome has a core that's made of RNA, but it's also got lots and lots of proteins. But the ribosome is the machine that makes proteins. So people wondered, how could the ribosome even come into being if it itself is made of proteins? How did the first ribosomes even come into being? Well, at that time, it wasn't known that RNA could carry out chemical reactions. But Francis Crick, in a really prophetic uh, paper, said, well, maybe early ribosomes consisted only of RNA. And then that you know, evolved into this modern ribosome. And, and, you know, we don't know what the early ribosome uh, might have looked like. And when these structures were solved, it turned out that all of the key parts of the ribosome uh, were only made of RNA. So it, it clearly suggested that Crick was right. And, of course, people like Harry Noller had done biochemical experiments that had suggested it, but never could prove it. Uh, but the structures really showed that the ribosome came from some ancient RNA world before there were proteins and before there was anything to decode, so before there was any DNA. So it really harkens back to an RNA world. And I think of the ribosome as a kind of Trojan horse. You know, it's, it, it's an RNA machine that started making proteins, but by doing so, it sort of transformed the RNA world into the modern world mm. uh, that exists today. Extraordinary. I mean, it, it, it is a sort of mind-boggling insight into the very dawn of life. And just finally, back to the Nobel Prize before I go uh, to the audience. Um, my f one of my favorite lines in the book was when you'd got the Nobel Prize and your wife, Vera, said, I thought you had to be really smart to win one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you talk a bit about uh, cronyism, the corrupting influence of prizes. Um, obviously, th there's going to be a lot of nervous scientists lingering around their office phone in a yes, few days' pre -nobel time. I call that pre-nobelitis. It's a disease. So, um, I mean, uh, Venki, do, do, you, do you still approve of Nobel Prizes? Or do you, or, I mean, is, is there a better so way of doing things? It's, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's complicated because of human nature. So, I, I think prizes use what I call a sports metaphor to, to science uh, by having winners and losers. Uh, but, you know, in, in sports, you can measure who came first, who jumped the most, you know, or who had the biggest score. Uh, but in science, 
it's multi-dimensional. You can't, you can't sort of rank people on a one-dimensional scale and say this person's first, second, and third, etc. And also, where do you draw the boundary? Why, why should you stop at three like the Nobel does? You know, it's not like yeah. you know, gold, silver, and bronze. So, so I, I have real problems uh, with prizes and what they do to science. And actually, they do it from a very early stage. You know, you get these prizes even from when you're a student, and you know, you get these early career awards. It's almost like you're plucking out people and anointing them uh, when actually, and, and saying these people are the stars. You know, well, what about the rest? Are yeah. they chopped liver? You know, so it, science is a, a large collaborative enterprise. Everybody sort of benefits from all the little discoveries, like with, you know, people who develop synchrotrons or detectors mm -hmm. and d developed all these instruments that we use, et cetera. You know, they're as much a part of this work. And so I think prizes are a, a bad metaphor for science. But, but a friend of mine said, look, you know, that's a very rational way to look at it, but humans like stories. And, yeah. you know, we look at everything as a play with good and bad characters, with heroes and villains. And we like our heroes. We like, you know, role models, et cetera. So I, I suppose, you know, uh, the way to look at it is, you know, these people are sort of representatives you know, of a field who've done well. But I have to say, the Nobel is not given for being a great scientist, and this is what my wife was alluding to. <laughs> and, and it's given for making a groundbreaking advance. Yeah. And I point out, you can do this by luck, or being in the right place mm -hmm. at the right time, having mentorship, etc. And I quote Shakespeare, you know, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And, and you know, the same is true of Nobels. And so you should never assume that a Nobel laureate is you know, particularly smart. You, know, you can assume that they've done one important thing at yeah. least in, at some point in their life, okay? But that's all you can assume. Let, let's have a couple of quick questions for our scientific hero. I'm, I know he won't mind me putting it like that. One at the back there, far away. So the, so we have two kinds of ribosomes. We have, well, we have actually thousands of kinds of ribosomes, but let's suppose we ignore all the bacteria that live inside us and only look at our human cells. We have two kinds of ribosomes. We have uh, what are called our ribosomes, uh, which are quite large in, in, in a way, but we also have organelles in, in us called mitochondria, which actually descended from bacteria when they were swallowed up by another cell. And these mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cell now. They're involved in producing energy. And they have their own ribosomes because they still retain a tiny remnant of that bacterial DNA. And so uh, now, if you ask how are ribosomes different from us, from mammals, well, almost all mammalian ribosomes are very, very similar, okay? Uh, when you get to yeast, they start to look somewhat different. And then when you get to bacteria, which are not eukaryotes, that is cells which have a nucleus, uh, then they're different. But, but the ribosomes of the different bacteria look very, very similar. And that's why these ribosomal antibiotics are what we call broad spectrum. Uh, they can be used for almost a, any variety of bacteria. Another question, right at the back.
Yeah, so, you know, science, science always depends on rapid exchange of information and ideas and so on. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate in, uh, I, I actually moved right in the middle of the race from uh, the US to the UK. And of course, I had to go through a work permit, uh, you know, regime, you know, to get permission to come and uh, work here. Uh, but I think, you know, any barrier that you put up on uh, exchange of, uh, you know, ideas, which is made possible by exchange of people, uh, you're going to uh, sort of slow down science, if not inhibit it. You, in some cases, you may inhibit it. In other cases, you will, you, in al almost all cases, you will slow it down. And it, furthermore, if you look at our group, you know, my group in Cambridge that uh, solved the ribosome had, uh, you know, three Americans, including myself at the time. And then uh, we had an English technician, a, a Danish postdoc, and an English graduate student. So, you know, we were a completely multinational team, you know, that uh, worked on it. So that, that's very typical, actually, of science. Any last question? Just. Yes, that's what I was alluding to, mm. yeah. Oh, right. you that? Yeah, that's exactly what I said. It costs a billion dollars, and the reason that it's not worth it for them is if you develop a new antibiotic, you don't want to give it to everyone. You want to give it to only to those patients who have resistant infections. So the patient pool is small. And then, if the antibiotic is any good, then in a week or two, they're cured, okay? So it's not like developing a new cholesterol drug or you know, a hypertension drug that they're, something they have to take for the rest of their lives, okay? That's the ideal patient, you know, some diabetic with hypertension and hypercholesteremia, you know, uh, that, that would be a pharmaceutical company's ideal patient. Well, look, thank you for your brilliant questions. Um, you can buy a copy of Gene Machine, and there's gonna be a signing by Venki afterwards uh, in the shop. Thank you to the Lates team. Thank you to One World Publishers. Uh, and very finally, let's have a big hand of applause for Venki. Thank you, Venki. <laughs> Cheers. Anyway, it was tough.